Hello, and welcome to No Time for Caution, a podcast about interstellar. I'm your host, Andy. I am the curator of QuantifiableConnection.com. I'm an interstellar addict, a Matthew McConaughey convert, and assuming I clear out my checking account, potentially a future Lincoln owner. Thanks so much for lending me your ear as we discuss all things interstellar. I am incredibly pleased to be joined this week by an up-and-coming comic book artist and writer, uh, pen name Narwhal. Narwhal, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It is absolutely a pleasure, pleasure. So I first came across you on YouTube because you've done a bunch of videos about kind of writing and storytelling. I think the first one I saw was The Relativity of Likeability. Uh, what made you decide to start the YouTube channel? Uh, I started it kind of, it's like the new model for indie comic creators is you, you have the YouTube channel, Twitter helps a little bit, but YouTube really helps. And even if your audience is kind of small, there's a community of comic YouTubers out there that they will help you too. And everyone like a rising sea raises all ships. The saying is like grab an oar and row. So, you know, people are live streaming, having fellow artists on you. So I make appearances on a bunch of different comic artists kind of in the community and then uh, my channel specifically is kind of trended in this direction of being, yeah, like com commentary on storytelling, basically. Have you been uh, creative your whole life or is that something you came to later? Definitely creative my whole life. And then, yeah, like, you know, out of high school, I had to make that decision of what I wanted to do. And I kind of it, I ended up kind of being the starving artist. You know, I, I, some some people do the path where they might become a doctor or whatever, and then retire early, and then they can write their novel or whatever they want to do. But I was kind of from the very beginning, you know, working part-time jobs, minimum wage, living super cheaply, uh, putting all my spare time to uh, writing a whole bunch uh, in my 20s uh, screenplays, and then comic creation as well. I have a lot of respect for that. I was very briefly, I majored in English in college, but I was briefly a film major and then I kind of took that other path you were talking about where I said to myself, do I really want to be waiting tables in L.A. Uh, hoping I can make it? And there's a part of me that uh, looks back and says, hey, fucking coward, you probably should have done it. So uh, I have a lot of respect for the starving artist route. And it seems like it's starting to pay off for you. You had a very successful crowdfunding campaign for a comic called Earthbound. Uh, what's that about? It's the pitch is it's uh, two mercenaries are sent to Earth to recruit five deadly warriors. They're armed with these special guns called R-types. If you shoot someone with their R-type, they they kind of get brainwashed and join your team. So they come down and they both start forming these teams to go against each other to try and recruit the, the majority of these five warriors for this like intergalactic tournament. So they're kind of like, you know, agents almost. But it's all, you know, it's like violent. What kind of uh, – what's your writing style and what's your art style? Do you have any uh, influences to speak of? Yeah, my art style is very inspired by kind of European comics, which I think they in turn are I, – I kind of picture them as they're half and half between manga and American style. And for some reason, I, did, I really like that. Like it's almost just like a lot of the cool things about manga, but sometimes manga has – you know, the crazy big eyes, super stylized, over stylized appeal, like the almost like Betty Boop. I think it was influenced by Betty Boop back in the day. And it's like uh, American style is like a little bit more realistic 
faces or whatever. And the, the European kind of took that. So they get the style of manga, but slightly more realistic faces. And that's, I really like that. And I try to do that with my art. And then writing wise, um, yeah, like Earthbound specifically is super inspired by Battle Royale, kind of where the story is just the strategy of the mission playing out. You got two characters, they both want to win this challenge against each other, and that's the story. So it's almost like a whole movie length action scene, but a bunch of the action is just, you know, like, you know, getting alliances, betrayals, friendships, all this kind of stuff. So the drama, you know. How do you balance the action with the drama? Is it possible, you think, to have nonstop action but not be uh, sacrificing character development? Yeah, I've seen some movies that kind of do that where it really works. Like Mad Max, the the newest Mad Max was like, it's pretty oh, much man, all I action. hated that shit. Oh, you didn't like it? it was... <laughs> I hated it. Yeah. That, and, to me, and to me, that was the problem. I thought there was no character development whatsoever. Yeah, see, that's funny. And yeah, you're kind of right. Like, that's all action. And I'm trying to think there's another movie I just watched called The Raid Redemption. Have you heard of that one? Uh, I've heard of that one, but I haven't seen it. I've heard from people I trust good things about it, though. Yeah, or like Dread. Have you heard of Dread or seen that? Yes. Yeah, I saw Dread. Okay, Dread's kind of like, it's like almost all action. And then the story is just like the set pieces change, the pacing changes. But the raid, it's based heavily on the raid redemption. I think it's almost like an homage movie. A lot of the beats are similar and stuff where you'll have like they're just stuck in this position of where they're kind of screwed. And then a lot of the time they're hiding, but then they might have to fight sometimes. So like fight, hide, fight is is like the hiding gives you like this to catch your breath or whatever. And there's a few moments like that in uh, even in. And um, Mad Max, you definitely, it, I don't know if I've ever seen it truly be like, like even maybe Transformers is kind of like that. That's where I really draw the line. I can't really stand, you know, three hours of CGI monsters kicking, punching each other or whatever. Yeah. And I think I'm probably being a little hard on Mad Max because, for instance, I really like the John Wick movies. And all you really have to hold on to there is like that five minutes where he's playing with the puppy before the guys kill it. So it's not like there's a ton of character development in there. I think Mad Max aesthetically, I don't like the macabre as much. And so I think I was a little bit biased against it just because I found a lot of the visuals kind of uh, uh, gross. That guy with his harem of uh, ladies and what have you. Oh, yeah, all that. What about, have you seen, like, the older Mad Max, like Road Warrior? Yes, I love the original Mad Max movies, absolutely. Yeah, and, like, Road Warrior is really awesome. And I think that movie, it's like the first 20 minutes, there's no dialogue. It's, like, all visual, and it's really impressive. And that, again, it's, like, not exactly action, but he's kind of, like, you know, he's spying on them for a while, and then he needs some gas. So, he like, they, you know, they kind of stare each other down, he zooms off. All that kind of stuff is really works. Mad Max, I, I can almost see a little bit of a parallel with Interstellar in that if you didn't go in knowing what it was about, the world seems very familiar to you at first, and it takes you maybe 15 or 20 minutes uh, before you find out how different the reality of the movie actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interstellar is cool. It like goes places. Yeah, speaking, because that's the purpose of this podcast to talk a little bit yeah, about narwhal getting you know i saw topic. that thank you <laughs> yeah i i saw that um 
in theaters by myself. And I'm really glad I kind of, that happens once in a while, kind of rarely, especially with movies I'm really looking forward to. I'll try and go see it alone or, you know, if it'll just come up, I, I don't shy away from that. And that's an intense movie to watch alone. You just, cause it, it picture a huge screen, you know, and all these sounds and experiences coming at you. You're like extra isolated. It, it downloads straight to your brain. And it was making my eyes discharge salt, you know, like I was like crying <laughs> yeah. essentially, but it was like super yeah, intense. Yeah, that was, uh, and especially I saw it uh, a number of times in 70 millimeter IMAX at the Smithsonian on the East Coast. And yeah, the sound is like vibrating in your chest. It's uh, incredibly immersive. And it has like yeah, some of the action set pieces there. It's not too, even too much action really, but I remember, yeah, there, it's so intense and cool when like, the ship is like spinning and he has to match the spin to dock it, you know, or whatever. And the, the crazy musical score is playing. It's like uh, the up and down organ, like. It's one of my favorite bits in the movie, the docking scene. And there's a lot going on there, both filmmaking-wise and like script-wise. One of the things I like about that, and it's probably been a long time since you've seen it, but do you remember early in the movie when they're first going into space and they're docking with the, the ship in orbit? And it's a totally pedestrian thing, but they actually kind of play it up for drama kind of just establishing the idea that even in the best of circumstances, docking is actually difficult. And then that sets up later in the movie, you've seen how difficult docking is under ideal circumstances. And so then the circumstances that they find themselves in there seem completely insurmountable with the ship descending into orbit falling apart. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And the other thing I remember is the way they film it is almost like GoPros attached to the ship. So the ship is staying steady on the camera. It's not moving at all. But then the background is what's moving if the ship moves, you know, like that's kind of how they might film like in Top Gun. They film jets that way. It, it, it's it's an interesting thing. So it basically just means the motion isn't on the ship. The motion is happening all behind the ship, all the the planets are spinning, you know, behind them at 360 degrees. So it'll swipe back. So anyway, that, that really helps with the action scene itself because the action scene itself is based on matching the rotation. That's actually interesting talking about the GoPro there. Cause that's like the camera they use so that they make sure, you know, like, Oh yeah, no Tom Cruise was really there doing that shit. So yeah, they're almost trying to trick you into thinking that it's, I don't know, a documentary or something. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. It's like a practical way to film it is what they do. And then there a lot of it true is like like le less CGI or like more practical. I know no one's good about that because I really think CGI can often kind of like ruin movies. It'll take you out of the movie if it looks fake. And Yeah, I completely agree. Uh as and it's it's really helpful for like the actors too. I remember that story of 
Ian McKellen breaking down, crying on the Lord of the Rings set because uh, he's like, this isn't why I got into acting because like he couldn't see anything. It was all green screen. So when the actors can actually see shit, it helps a lot. Yeah, I haven't heard that anecdote about Ian McKellen, but that makes sense. That's funny. Oh, there's one thing. I've said this on my YouTube channel. It's almost like a bottled rant, but I'll just say quickly. One of the cool things about having practical sets or objects on the set is just for lighting reference for the CGI. If you need to add a little CGI later, like the best example is the giant T-Rex in Jurassic Park. The fact that they actually had a giant T-Rex on set, that helps all the CGI artists when they actually do have to animate uh, the T-Rex being a little more, mo- have some more movement. They have this actual real life reference so they can match the lighting perfectly and do all that kind of stuff. That, so that helps them trick our eye. And if they didn't have that, then it would be, they'd get a lot of little things wrong and we would notice instantly. I think that's a little bit what the uh, Star Wars prequels suffered from. I actually didn't think they were as bad as most people, but it's just so apparent that none of that's real it has a very video game look about it and i guess maybe that's part of it is it was just literally all green screen there was nothing for the animators to reference yeah they came out it's kind of like a a the wrong time it's right when filmmakers were excited about cgi and they they hadn't thought about how bad it can be or whatever it's it was so new and fresh so george lucas just kind of overused it basically what do you think the worst CGI is that you've seen in uh, recent memory? Let me think. Well, one thing I'd say is it's way better back in the day when they used more, it's like half and half practical. Like Starship Troopers actually has great CGI. That's like 1997 or something. Jurassic Park has great CGI. But um, I guess the thing I notice actually, maybe that's a hard question to answer because I feel like every movie looks the same now with respect to CGI. Yeah, because I don't even know what I've what I've seen lately. Like I, I I don't I honestly like even with the Marvel movies, there's one thing especially you can spot CGI is if the physics are off and if they try to do a human. So like the, the worst CGI I ever saw was The Matrix Reloaded, and that was uh, a bummer too because The Matrix did it right. It didn't really use CGI. They used the crazy technology. They invented a new kind of camera to do that bullet time stuff. And that's all that's all real footage. And then for the sequels, they just fake it and do it all CGI. And it looks very fake. I think movies just feel soulless now in a way they didn't before. So I kind of think of Independence Day as the perfect Hollywood blockbuster. It checks all of the boxes of what you're looking for. And it has a very unique style to it, aesthetic style. And that's because... A lot of it had to be practical. And so I think when you take away the models and you make it all CGI, and half the time, I guess it's probably the same companies that are producing the CGI, uh, movies just don't have the same sense of identity that they used to. Yeah, that's true. And kind of bringing it back to Interstellar, I kind of keep track in my head of like, you know, filmmakers I like to follow. And there's a few, they're kind of holding down the fort. But in general, yeah, like I don't really like modern movies at all just in general but then like christopher nolan's definitely one of the people holding down the fort like him quentin tarantino robert eggers is this guy who just did the movie the lighthouse and the witch like i'm gonna watch his next movies uh but yeah but yeah nolan's really uh he you we can kind of trust him at this point that especially it's cool he does little things right like he doesn't overuse cgi i actually like his casting choices are fun he always picks the 
actors of the moment that everyone seems to be excited about. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if in his next movie he casts like Adam Driver. Adam Driver's kind of like everyone's into Adam Driver right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, good old Kylo Ren, one of the great, uh, well-drawn characters of our time. Uh, I know. Yeah. The, the the new Star Wars are kind of a joke, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've always said the best villain is the one that gets beat easily in the first movie and the second movie leading into the third. That's usually a good storytelling choice. Yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, and he, he's kind of a angsty teen is like his angle. <laughs> I have to say, that was probably the most disappointing thing to me about The Force Awakens was I actually felt like they were doing a pretty decent job building him up to be a foreboding villain. And then he takes the helmet off and it's like, it's it's the guy from Girls? What's going on here? Yeah, he he's, I don't know, like he got that role like this happens like actors will make a bunch of kind of cool movies and then they do their one huge Hollywood movie and that kind of brings home the bacon for them I guess but that's kind of can be like a stain on their on their repertoire or whatever right so pulling it back to the docking scene you talked about kind of casting the um, actors du jour of the moment uh, it's actually interesting in this case. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey coming off Dallas Buyers Club, True Detective. He was kind of uh, at the cusp of a renaissance in his career, and um, Interstellar was definitely part of that. And then Anne Hathaway, God bless her, she had been not blacklisted, but people had stayed away from her for a little bit because of a strange wardrobe thing at the Oscars. Do you remember that? No, but I can picture, I remember, yeah, that movie, it took her seriously and allowed her to play like a serious real person. And I picture a lot of her movies, she was like a goofy ditz or something was kind of like her typecast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she, yeah, she had never portrayed an intelligent scientist before. And you could tell that she sort of relished that and brought a kind of cool, aloof arrogance to it that played very effectively off of McConaughey's uh, kind of warm, good old boy quality that he brings to everything. You know, out there, we, we would face great odds. Death, but... not evil. You don't think nature can be evil? No. Formidable, frightening, but... no, not evil. Hmm. Was well, line evil because it rips a gazelle to shreds? That's what we take with us, Anne. Yeah. This crew represents the best of humanity. Even me, huh? Yeah? You know what? We agreed 90%. There you go. Let's stay up. I'll be there in a minute. Oh, just remember, Coop, you are literally wasting your breath. Going back to the docking scene, you mentioned the music, and the score of the film is very interesting. The ticking clock that appears in the background of all of the tent scenes, I think really ramps up the tension. The organ adds a lot to it, too. It has kind of this breathy quality to it. There's something kind of essentially human about it, I think. Yeah, it it feels simple. Like, it's like, this is something I say on my channel, too, sometimes storytelling-wise. You only need one thing. You don't need, like, five things of, like, points of interest for the audience to be keeping track of. If you just got one really good one, that's kind of the best. And and so I feel like that scene's like that. It's it's like, we kind of get it that, like, that thing is spinning, and he has to match his rota its rotation. And if he pulls that off, it seems crazy. But if he pulls that off, then they might survive. And 
that's it just playing out kind of simple, you know. And it's interesting that that scene really has to turn out the way that it does for the movie to work. And yet the first time I saw it, there was that uncertainty for me that they want you to have in your head. Did you think that there was a chance they wouldn't be successful or did you know that for the plot of the movie, it had to happen? Yeah, I definitely was caught in the moment. And yeah, like that movie was enough. The plot was kind of getting out there. So I'm not sure like, yeah, at at any point if they're, how how the story is supposed to progress because it was it wasn't like really traditional structure like necessarily like hero's journey i don't really think it's necessarily like that really i don't know which i I appreciate that if it's a little bit different a little bit fresh and that's when like i think he co-wrote that with his brother yes um, christopher nolan did yeah and his brother had had the script for a while for it had been working on it and this is they uh Christopher Nolan, I think he was, uh, this is kind of like my theory, but I think he's, he was self-conscious about human emotion in his scripts because his, his earlier movies are so clever and that people were started to peg him as the clever guy who is not always the greatest human connection, human emotion. And he tried to really change that with Inception, but people still said that. Like Inception has a big backstory with lots of emotion, but people were still say, oh, it's all crazy sci-fi action weak on the human connection i think that kind of he's like ah all right this time i'm really gonna make him cry with some good human connection and his brother can help him maybe that's part of the theory is that when him and his brother write together is the most they can really focus on that yeah the history of the movie is really interesting it kind of started with uh kip thorne a theoretical physicist from one of the California state school systems, I can't remember, but he basically had this idea that he wanted to do the most realistic science fiction film ever. And I think originally the script was kind of like a first contact type situation, and it kept kicking around from writer to writer, studio to studio. Uh, Finally, Jonathan Nolan got a hold of it, and he did a draft. If I remember correctly, his draft was actually focused a little more on a Cooper brand relationship, McConaughey and, and Anne Hathaway relationship. And then surprisingly, Christopher Nolan is actually kind of the one who came in and layered on the emotional element. But it's really interesting, the idea that he was trying to get away from a reputation for being too plot-focused, too clever. There's an anecdote where... Uh, when he talked to Hans Zimmer about the score, he didn't tell him anything about the movie. He just gave them one. He gave him one intimate father-daughter scene and asked him to write a piece of music based on that scene. And that's actually where the soundtrack originated from. Was that original demo that that Hans Zimmer did? So that would suggest to me you may be right that he was really conscious about uh, about the emotional impact going in. Yeah, and then so then. After that, just I'm curious playing this through. Then he did the the war movie. Do you remember what it's called? The battle. Uh, Dunkirk. Yeah. So then he did Dunkirk, and that's kind of back to that one again. Was I think criticized for not being super heavy emotion. It's very a uh, documentary, like soulless observation. But it, I, I enjoyed that movie a lot too. But it, I don't know. He's I guess he's trying different things. But I kind of I bet his next movie. It's kind of that same thing. I bet he'll try and focus heavily on some human emotion type stuff. It was really sparse with 
dialogue, certainly. You don't get any backstory on the characters. I found myself really emotionally involved, and I wonder if that was a choice where he knows that being a World War II movie, people are going to bring their own baggage to it. Like, my grandfather, who I was very close with, was in the war. I'm actually wearing his uh, dog tags now. Just uh, I just wear them in my daily life because it makes me feel connected to him. And so everyone kind of already has an emotional connection to World War II, and so y- you bring your own emotion to the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, that movie—it's the very first shot. I feel like there's some mathematic, mathematical Nolan-esque logic to that. So it's five soldiers walking, and then they start—they get under fire. Four that they all run. Four of them get shot, and one of them gets away. And I, I, I kind of feel like in the Nolan-esque soulless logic, it this is what it kind of the subtext is like. All right, of these five people, one of, one of them was lucky enough to get out of that crazy situation where everyone else died. So he's of a quick encounter. He's the lone survivor. Let's see if he keeps being lucky. So you kind of care for him just for that initial fact that he rolled the dice and survived the the very beginning. So now we're kind of just invested because like, well, he made it this far. We don't want him to die now. Going back to something I remember seeing in one of your videos, and it was touching on that idea of Christopher Nolan making an intentional choice to inject a lot of emotion into the script. There's a scene in the middle of the movie that you referenced. It's after the water planet where they're trying to decide uh, where to go next. They only have enough fuel to visit one more planet. And there's a scene with Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway discussing the spirituality of love versus the... Uh, sociological and scientific aspects of love. Uh, you seem to have a reaction to that. Yeah, I think the way you explain that actually sounds cooler to me than how even like the, the if the movie was more like that, that might be even better. But yeah, I think what does she say? But she says, you know, like love is is the power says, that holds us all together. Or? She says, uh, love is the only thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Uh, Cooper talks about how uh, its purpose is social utility, bonding, child-rearing, and she challenges him saying, we love people who have died. Where is the social utility in that? Oh, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's pretty interesting. They gave it, it's like, that is a hard line to, to deliver for her. It's like a challenge and, and she does it with gusto. So she pulls it off or like, at least she tries her hardest. So that's good. Um, but yeah, that, that scene, it is, was like, I don't know, it, it'll, uh, separate some cynics, you know, it'll, it's a litmus test for cynics. <laughs> oh, you're, oh no, you are absolutely right. Pretty much everyone, uh, that I've heard, well, there's two camps of people who have problems with the movie. There's one camp that says, what the fuck happens after he falls into the black hole? They just don't really want to intellectually engage with that, or they think it's silly. Uh, and then there's the group of people that think the movie is maudlin. They think it's over-the-top emotional. And yeah, I think as a society... We feel this need to hedge anytime we're making a genuine expression of emotion. Everything has to be ironic. Everyone's 
too cool for school. And I guess for me, I, I, I don't really have that. I guess I have uh, a, a little bit of optimism still in me. Yeah, yeah. There, and it is, you can enjoy art better that way. And if the movie wants you, you know, there's a, it kind of, if you give it the benefit of the doubt and meet it on its terms is kind of what you're supposed to do. And so I guess it's like, if that pulls you out, it's only for a moment to like, maybe you might have one meta thought out of the movie, like, oh, this is like maybe a little cheesy. And then it gets, you get back into the movies. It keeps rolling and everything. But yeah, I'm kind of glad it's there. It's kind of ballsy a little bit to put it in there. And kind of like, oh, it's a little bit like Nolan doubling down maybe about like, yes, this movie is all about human emotion. If you're thinking that maybe is true. Yeah. And I think that scene and certainly in the Tesseract, when he's interacting with her across time and space through the bookshelf, it's a nice bookend to what happens on Earth at the beginning of the movie. What I I really enjoy about this is that the first third of the movie is basically a John Steinbeck novel. It's uh, an exploration of, you know, the Dust Bowl, Grapes of Wrath, or, or... good and evil, east of Eden, that kind of thing. And so you have the very grounded story of him and his daughter, and it's incredibly relatable because it's on Earth, an Earth that, while being in the future, doesn't look any different than Earth today. And as the film goes along, it gets stretched more and more into something cosmic. Yeah, yeah, that is cool. And quickly to the beginning, I... I like that a lot it's pretty interesting the the end of the world scenario is interesting and i i'll tell you a quick like i did i talked a little bit about this on my youtube channel too but there's this thing called malthusianism and so that's where population growth is potentially exponential while the growth of food supply is linear by this guy robert malthus i'm reading it on google right now but anyway uh as laid out in his 19 or 1798 writing so way back in the day he sort of predicted the end of the world just via population growth that we wouldn't be able to feed everyone. Now then we kind of avoided that because we invented um, genetically modified uh, farming, but, uh, and these crazy super farms, but the thing is we're growing corn. So that's kind of like the new thing people are a little bit worried about. And there's tons of corn subsidies in the government. So it's like all we grow, it's all farmers can do right now to make a profit. So there's tons of corn growing and corn. I, I have a friend who's a, a dirt scientist. I don't know what she's called uh, actually, but she's like <laughs> uh-huh. an expert I'm on sure dirt. I'm sure she would appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. So she told me, she said, uh, yeah, corn is really hard on soil and even crop rotation uh, doesn't work on it. So if you grow, it's like a lot of people are worried about a new dust pole eventually because we're just growing so much corn. And if that happens, then it's kind of back to the small Malthusian thing where maybe it, it, population keeps going, all the genetic farming keeps going all the corn then we get another dust bowl then we're kind of shit out of luck and at that point there will be mass starvation and we could be pretty darn screwed and that's like where interstellar enters the picture kind of i have to say it's really rare that someone gives me something to think about with respect to interstellar that i haven't already thought about but you just did my sister has a really severe corn allergy she's allergic to everything And because they're producing so much corn, as you suggested, they put it in absolutely everything, things it doesn't need to be in. It's in toothpaste. It's in everything imaginable. Uh, And so I have to wonder, actually, whether uh, corn as sort of the last surviving crop in the world of Interstellar is actually 
some kind of commentary on uh, the corn lobby or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think those things are tied. And yeah, the corn syrups is everywhere for sure. I work part time at the Fred Meyer Deli and it's like, yeah, it's in the deli meats, you know. <laughs> you get a you get a lot of uh, weirdos in there or is it pretty much just a normal slice of life? Uh yeah, I I enjoy it uh, because I only work two days a week. So I, I have been through the comic scene, you know, I've been able to uh, supplement my income to the point where the the Fred Meyer job, it's down to the point just where I want it. I like to get out of the house two days a week and go slice some deli meats. And yeah, I, I do get like little anecdotes that are strange or funny, but usually, um, usually it's pretty normal, I guess. I had one guy come up though once and he said like, he's like, I'm on uh Oh shoot! What's it called if you're on you're on kind of like hospice? So he's like, I'm on hospice. Mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna die. I have cancer. I'm gonna die pretty soon. But so I'm saying goodbye to everyone. Well, goodbye. <laughs> yeah. And then he walked off. I was like, I just gave that man his last ham sandwich. Like, make, <laughs> make sure you enjoy it, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Good lord! That uh, so did you? Is he? He's a regular. You knew him? Uh, no, but he just was like in a in a you know, he wanted to make a connection with a multiple people cause he's too, you know, going to die soon, I guess. That's a man that actually, uh, hit me pretty hard for whatever reason. It's especially today with technology being what it is. We claim that we're more connected than ever to people because of social media. But of course, in a way we're further away from other people than we ever had. So that guy, was so desperate for a human connection. He wandered into the the fucking deli to talk to you. That's uh, sad. I know. Yeah, it is weird. And it is like people are all right there. But to actually reach out and talk to him under what circumstances, it's like, oh, it's a pretty good icebreaker, I guess. It's a pretty good conversation piece to be dying of cancer. Then you can have something to talk, to talk about. <laughs> Yeah, and actually, it's funny because you just said you know you you do it to get out of the house uh, two days a week. I imagine the comic artist life could be a little bit isolating, and that that could affect your ability to write about the human experience. Yeah, at least a little bit. Um, like I, uh, a lot of my social life is online. It's through these live streams, the online community, other comic artists, and I love it. And it's super fulfilling and they're cool, but yeah, you, you gotta have a little real life in there or else you start to go crazy. And I, yeah, I wonder like writing could become, if it gets so inbred that it's all theory, you know, it could still be good and fun, but you want to like keep, keep touch with the real world as much as possible for like, yeah, like, even if it's just inspiration or just, yeah, like, uh, data but that's kind of a cold way of looking at it but yeah mm -hmm. so that takes me a little bit into the writing process so as christopher nolan was putting the touches on jonathan nolan's interstellar script the emotional connection between cooper and murph uh, father and daughter was the main through line of the movie and so Throughout it, he kept going to Kip Thorne, the physicist, and saying, I need you to give me an explanation for how this scene would be scientifically plausible. And Kip Thorne would say, well, it's not. And he would say, no, I need this for the movie. And so the love between father and daughter was the thread connecting everything. When you're setting out to write, is it an emotional beat? that you are trying to satisfy or 
Is it uh, the plot? What, do you, what are you considering most as you begin to lay out a story? Yeah, I, I, I think a lot about, I call them just like itches that I want to scratch. So I got like 10 stories maybe that I want to tell. And a lot of times it's checking off genres, but there's kind of, yeah, like a little meta perspective that's uh, goal-based, but it's, and then it's, it's like more meta than within the story for me though. So, and then like characters might come later or for some of those, it might be character first, but for example, it would be like, there's one, there's like a horror script that I want to do eventually. And my idea is for it to be this really dark reality happening of this, like kind of like a serial killer thing, but worse is what I'm thinking. And, And then, then the people who fight that, uh, they're, they're, um, solution to this super negative thing is really positive so having the contrast of really evil to really good but not having it be like demons and angels uh but having it be kind of more of like a horror thing but having the light next to the dark that that interests me so that'll get me um going and that can that can carry me through certain scenes or inform if i have to make a hard decision because sometimes you can sit there you can make a decision through indecision if it takes too much too much time or you just like uh through attrition or whatever, you're kind of making some writing decisions, playing siege with your own brain. But then, um, or, you know, if you have these like guide posts, you can get through it quicker. Sometimes that can sometimes be when it, when the, when they say it felt like it's writing itself, it's kind of like, cause you're kind of adhering to a little bit of a higher power almost where you, some of it's maybe stuff you set up, but it's like, yeah, pull, or it could be pulling it from the ether. Some people have a spiritual experience about that. The way they talk about ideas, they feel like they're pre-existing. Stephen King says that. He says, um, writing feels like dusting off uh, old bones, like an archaeologist, not like creating um, bones or whatever, you know? That's so interesting. And I imagine different people must have different styles. So I don't write, um, but I'm in marketing, so I write a lot, just nothing that I am actually entertained by. But I, I write a little bit for pleasure. And the thing that I find is I kind of have the beginning and the end in mind. And in the middle, I'll have an idea of what I want to write. But when I sit down to write it, I'll say to myself, well, it doesn't really make sense that the character would react like this, or this was sort of accidentally set up earlier and needs to be paid off. And so I'll kind of really meander around trying to to find something organic uh, in the middle. Do you find you're able to take those markers and, and really stick to them uh, as you're writing the story? Yeah, good question. So I definitely, when that comes up, I've kind of learned that you have to go with, you know, the characters or the logic of the story. You, if you ever go against it, then it feels fake. So if you're like trying to shoehorn in, like I need an action scene here. So he has to get mad at her. Like, and, but then if you're like, well, there's no reason for her to get mad at him. Like I I have to go with that second. I'm like, all right, it's just going to play out logically based on what I've set up. And if that isn't to me, like the perfect thing I wanted, that's fine. The movie will be chill or like the script will be chill for a little bit. And then we can get back into something super interesting. But, um, yeah, like it's okay to, to just write, you know, straightforward what it, what would happen, what it would be in those situations where you're not sure. Or we we need some. So taking this back to Nolan and dovetailing off what we were talking about there, I think I'm kind of like you if I'm writing something is it's really the 
concept that interests me and that drives me to write. And then, you know, you, you put the effort into making sure the characters are interesting and the motivations make sense, but it's kind of the concept or, or the plot that's driving it. And you were suggesting that early in his career, that was kind of uh, where Christopher Nolan was. And looking back at some of his previous movies, I, I actually think your theory is pretty good there. If you look at a movie like Memento, there's nothing to suggest that the character was of any consequence to him. That movie is kind of the quintessential example of a uh, uh, a two-hour concept playing out as opposed to a character piece. Definitely. And his first movie, too, right? What's that one called? It's like black and white where a guy break, breaks in and steals stuff from people. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I do know what you're talking about. I, I don't remember the title, though. I'm going to Google it really quick. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that I just kind of agree. Yeah, Memento especially is really, uh, it's like clever, cleverness almost to a fault, although it's fine for what it is. You know, that, again, that's kind of just what it is. And if you want to meet it on its terms, then you kind of know you're, if you go in wanting a, a super good father daughter relationship movie with Memento, that's on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Memento is a good example of showing the promise of a director who didn't hit it out of the park uh, the first time. I mean, a lot of people love that and still do celebrate it. To me, that's sort of a really interesting piece that showed that he was capable of a lot more. Yeah, yeah. And his first movie was called Following. Following, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that one it is pretty cool, especially for our first movie. It's like black and white, 16 millimeter, super clever uh, script. Definitely all about the cleverness. I wonder, certain stories are like that. Like, it can be, I mean, like, we we like them. They can be classics, you know, like, what what's uh, the usual suspects, you know? But then, obviously, you become a slave to that payoff as a writer. It's, it's all in service of that, if that's your most important thing. And yeah, probably I pro usually don't, but I imagine if that's your concept, if that's the thing that gets you all excited in the beginning, then that, that could be your goal poster to keep you going kind of thing. And there's a big discrepancy in rewatch value there. I saw Memento once, maybe 15 years ago, and I really enjoyed it. It was well done. And I have no need to see it again. Again, really, I suppose there's little details you may not have noticed the first time that you could pick up on, but you've already had the payoff. The payoff is the twist. Whereas in a film like Interstellar, the payoff is that emotional thread. And so I can, in a way, almost experience it for the first time again every time I watch the movie. Yeah, yeah. And Interstellar 2 you do notice more things when you see it a second time. It's yeah, it's kind of fun to see uh, just if whatever you might miss. Cause it's, it's very, you know, long and detailed and rich kind of, uh, you know, on topic with this a little bit, that's kind of interesting is the new Tarantino movie called once upon a time in Hollywood. Did you, have you seen that? I did. It was absolutely phenomenal. I loved it. I know. I love that movie. And yeah, so Tarantino that his, his, idea that started all that it was just the characters so he had built the characters he had built their history he knew their filmography and their their past and everything and he was trying to think of a, a plot for them for a long time and he eventually he kind of nixed that idea he's like you know what i kind of want 
the characters to be the draw, not the plot. And that means what I should do is a day in the life movie. So that's his genre, but it's, it's essentially plotless, you know, like you have like little goals. Like, I mean, the plot for the day for Leonardo DiCaprio's char- character is that he's hung over and he botches the first scene and then he goes to his trailer and he wants to redeem himself on the set and do a better job acting. Like that's the plot. So, so simple. Oh, you're drinking all night. Fucking drinking again. Eight goddamn fucking whiskey sours. <sighs> fucking bullshit. <laughs> you're a fucking miserable drunk. You're fucking remembering your fucking lines. I practiced them and now I don't look like I goddamn practiced them. You're sitting there like a fucking baboon. <laughs> I hate fucking whiskey sour. I couldn't stop at fucking three or four. Right? Why? You're a fucking alcoholic. You fucking drink too much, huh? Every fucking night, every fucking night, that's it. That's fucking it. That's fucking it. You stop drinking right now, all right? Make a promise to yourself you're going to stop fucking drinking. Look at that little fucking girl. You're going to show that goddamn Jim Stacy. You're going to show all of them on that goddamn fucking set who the fuck Rick Dalton is, all right? Let me tell you something. You don't get these lines right. I'm gonna blow your fucking brains out tonight. Alright? Your brains are gonna be splattered all over your goddamn pool. I mean it, motherfucker. Get your shit together. Yeah, like, so it was just Tarantino liking the characters so much, kind of wanting to test if just them alone can be the thing to keep it moving, to keep people's interest of that, that kind of like that one thing. And it worked and it's fun. Yeah, so that's like a good example where plot, cleverness, it can kind of take away from some of that. And I guess there's, I don't know if there's examples where you can get both firing on all cylinders. Usually it's one or the other. It's kind of a clever, cool, cool plot or it's uh, really cool, fun characters that are just fun to hang out with. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And one thing that Nolan and Tarantino share in common to a certain extent is they both make really interesting casting decisions. If you look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, I don't know what ditch he found Michael Madsen in, but he dusted him off again. Uh, Luke Perry, of all people, uh, shows up to play a middling actor in the uh, within the movie within the movie, which is a bit meta. And they both tend to work with the same people over and over and over. In this case, the leads are a little different. I don't think Tarantino... Oh, no, Tarantino worked with DiCaprio in Django Unchained, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of kind of repeat customers in Tarantino movies. Michael Caine is obviously in every Christopher Nolan movie ever made. Uh, What do you think that is? Do you think it's a a comfort level? They just enjoy working with the actors? It's almost part of their brand? What is it? Yeah, I wonder, like... I know for Tarantino, it's a little bit of the writing process. He likes to write with the character in mind and it can inform the dialogue if you hear their voice in your head. And then from the other side, there's actors that want to work with them. So they're both big directors. It's like anyone could will want to work with them. Their movies are super high profile. So they get the pick of the litter kind of. And so some of it, it, like in the case of DiCaprio, I think it's almost like Tarantino has a checklist. He's like, I kind of just want to work with whoever's the most famous right now, because that might be fun to do. And so DiCaprio's kind of on the the peak of his game, the most famous guy in Hollywood the last 10 years or so. And so Tarantino wanted to work with him. That's one guess, a little more just kind of like regular. But 
Yeah, I think that's probably the case. Uh, Brad Pitt, to me, is an actor that gets more and more interesting the older he gets. Uh, I guess some of it is, as he ages, he gets further and further removed from that pretty boy aesthetic that he had when he was younger. Now that he has some lines on his face and he looks kind of uh, gruff, he has a little more gravitas, I think. Yeah, his character in Once Upon a Time uh, in Hollywood is so likable. It's kind of a funny, like, to me, it's like that could be one of Tarantino's meta goals would be like, I'm going to write the most likable character in the history of of movies. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, DiCaprio, DiCaprio's character is very endearing, but Brad Pitt's character is sort of joyously selfless in a way you very rarely see. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of like enlightened or something, you know, he's at peace. I've heard him, It's sometimes it's really fun to hear actors talk about their own characters because they're like the experts on that, you know, so they always say kind of interesting, succinct, uh, insightful things. And yeah, he said just about his character that I think he said like that he's at peace, something like that, you know, like he's kind of, he's happy with whatever comes his way. He's rolling with the punches to a point now where he's kind of accepted, you know, because it's kind of funny. He's like, better looking than most actors, but he's just a stuntman and he's okay with that. And that kind of makes you like him a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nolan has spanned a lot of genres in his career. Uh, Memento, kind of the, I don't know, uh, better version of an M. Night Shyamalan movie as far as the whole thing being the twist. The Prestige, he had a period piece. Uh, Interstellar was his sci-fi epic. I don't really know what this new movie Tenet is going to be, but he had Dunkirk, the war movie. Uh, what do you think makes him able to be such a chameleon as far as genre? Or do you think that's just something any good writer can do? I think for him, it's one of the reasons I like him so much is that I think he he likes uh, genre. You know, like even his willingness to do a Batman movie or want to. And the, of course, his Batman movies are, are great, you know. And um, so like, yeah, a lot, like it's almost like he's not that pretentious but his movies will be pretentious compared to other schlock genre or whatever like he'll do a really good version of whatever genre he wants to work in um a really artful version but he, i think he loves genre which that's kind of i definitely relate to that a lot that's kind of my thing i love genre and that's a lot of my the itches i want to scratch as a writer it's all based on working in different genres because that's fun and that's where the inspiration comes from. And Tarantino's a little bit like that too. You know, he, he likes jumping different genres and everyone wants to know like what happens if Tarantino makes a horror movie? That would be interesting. Or I kind of want to see if Tarantino made, you know, whatever other genre or like return to crime for a genre and do another. Cause he supposedly he's only got one movie left. So they say he says he's doing 10 movies and he's done nine. So it's like, what's his last movie going to be? I have a guess. I have a prediction for you. I think it might be, Kill Bill Volume Three, because that that the aging does work out for that for it to be uh, pretty interesting. Where it's the, the kids and uh, oh, oh, it's um because Uma Thurman's daughter is is uh, she's like I don't know twenty years old now or something. She's this she's in she's in um Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and she's in um season two of Stranger Things. I think she's like she's a total looks like a movie star, really cool weird kind of look to her kind of like her mom anyway she's like she's going places and i feel like he'll do kill bill volume three cast uma thurman's daughter that's my guess what do you think the premise of that would be uma thurman gets off and the daughter goes on a revenge path 
Yeah, something like that. It would be between the daughters of the of the characters. Because Uma Thurman, the bride, she kills that one woman while her daughter's watching, and she says, "When you get older, if you still feel sore about this, I'll be waiting." And then she walks away. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to something you just said as you were talking about them pretentiousness, I sometimes in the past have had trouble connecting the Tarantino movies because I did think that there was a little bit of an air of pretentiousness. I, I never enjoy writing where you feel like the person is really proud of themselves, gave themselves a little bit of a pat on the back. Aaron Sorkin is really difficult for me for that reason. Uh, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood doesn't have any of that. I agree with you. And yet, and Tarantino, yeah, he like matured out of it. It seems like there's none of that in, in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the, the lines, they're like one line, you know, nobody's, nobody's, uh, st- standing on a soapbox and delivering a, sh- like a Tarantino's version of a Shakespearean monologue or whatever. Um, it's like the lines are so funny. Like there's a line where, where, uh, DiCaprio, he's, he's crying cause he just talked to his agent and his, and, and Brad Pitt's like, What's wrong, old buddy? And he goes, "Well, well, it's official, old buddy. I'm a has been." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think some of that is like, uh, yeah. Tra- he's got to a point where he realizes that the actors kind of want to bring something to it, and they don't want to have to. Everyone has a Christopher Walken monologue in the old movies, and in this one, DiCaprio and Pitt are bringing a lot to it. Yeah, yeah, they get to step into it where it steps a little bit away from like the Tarantino iambic pentameter because he invented, or I don't know if he invented that, but like there's a rhythm to his words and that got old. Like I remember seeing some actors would come in and they just do the Tarantino iambic pentameter. So I, I can give you an example, even it's in a uh, Inglorious Bastards, like the German spy, there's the girl, she gets shot, but they're, she, they're talking to her in this room. She's going to tell him, and she, she says something like, the Germans are having a party at this location for three reasons. One, the blah, 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 blah. Two, the blah, 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 blah. Three, they say the Fuhrer himself will be in attendance. Something like that. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. saying that's like the Tarantino iambic pentameter. It's a, it almost sounds like a uh, William Shatner Priceline commercial or something. Yeah, yeah. And it, so, yeah, it, it, it was cool at first. And knew, but I, I think Tarantino might be a little aware of it or know it, or I don't know if anyone whispered in his ear or if he just sensed it, but he stepped away from that for sure with his latest movie, which I think is a, is great. Yeah, absolutely agreed. So we put, you know, Tarantino's feet to the fire a little bit. Uh, should probably do the same with Nolan. So Nolan's writing in Interstellar to me, for the most part, is very um, grounded and organic and believable, but there are these moments where. Matthew McConaughey will have a perfectly constructed statement that just slightly uh, stretches credulity. So, for instance, there's that scene where he and John Lithgow are out on the porch and he says in his Matthew McConaughey drawl, We used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we look down and worry about our place in the dirt. And <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just like a, it's enough. Like a, it's like a Lincoln commercial, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. On the first episode, uh, I, I did this game uh, at the end with my guest where I tried to have them guess whether it was a Lincoln commercial quote or an interstellar quote, and he didn't get all of them right. 
Oh, see, so you got him. See, that's funny. Yeah, and I see what you're saying. And that's almost like, yeah, this this thing where every, everyone knows what you're doing and it's we we decide whether it's old or not. Is this old hat like, like okay, you, you're able to set up and write a poetic line and math and have Matthew McConaughey deliver it in his Lincoln droll or whatever. And like, that's cool. But we, we kind of, it's become a meme at this point. We all know that. So I don't know if we'll be seeing too much of that. Hopefully that's like one of maybe the only things about that movie that could be counted as like aged or dated. You're like, huh, that's McConaughey circa 2015 Lincoln commercials. <laughs> yeah, it really, <laughs> yeah, there's like a suspension of disbelief with plot, but there's also I don't know, just a leniency that the audience grants you based on the trust they have. Like, all right, Nolan, we gave you that one, but let's let's move on. Yeah, you could you could imagine if like if that's all he did was speak in those platitudes, that would be a funny character, like a SNL skit almost, you know. He's doing it again. He's he's doing poetic statements for no reason. Yeah, it's a little bit. Uh, did you watch True Detective? Uh, yeah, yeah, I love True Detective. And sure, that, that has a little bit of that too, for sure. Yeah, I absolutely love True Detective. But then one day, I think I was on IMDb, and I was just reading a list of quotes, and I thought, God damn, I don't know how Matthew McConaughey made this work, because this is just like emo suicide poetry. In eternity, where there is no time, nothing can grow, nothing can become. Nothing changes. So death created time to grow the things that it would kill. And you are reborn, but into the same life that you've always been born into. I mean, how many times have we had this conversation, detectives? Well, who knows? remember your lives you can't change your lives and that is the terrible and secret fate of all life you're trapped like a nightmare you keep waking up into I heard him say something cool about that character too, uh, behind the scenes type stuff. And he said that the first three episodes, his character doesn't do anything except just talk and try and be cool. But there's no reason to think he's actually cool. And so he was worried on the performance. He wanted to spice it up and the director, or that was kind of his instinct. And then in conversations with the director or the writer, they were kind of like, no, chill, because you're going to have a moment where people kind of realize where it all kind of comes to fruition or whatever, like where it lines up what, what you think of yourself, what, and what the audience thinks about you. And that's when he goes undercover in that crazy one shot action scene. He does the drugs. And, and that is one know, of that. the most incredible things I have ever seen that tracking shot. Yeah. That's so badass, And, and it's so cool. And from that point, you kind of get his character. You're like, Oh, he is like, he is like a legendary badass. I didn't quite get that. And before that, he's kind of like, who is this guy? <laughs> Yeah, and that's something I that's something I wouldn't have associated with Matthew McConaughey before, but definitely in True Detective and definitely in Interstellar is I'm kind of surprised by the delicacy and gentleness he has with characters. Uh, he he tends to 
underplay things and yet he infuses it with this undercurrent of emotion and I don't know it's just kind of amazing what a good actor he's become after 10 years of Kate Hudson movies I know I was thinking that too it's yeah it's just weird he came out of nowhere sort of he's one of the best actors around these days you know there's one quick thing I want to talk about kind of him maybe but Interstellar also is I kind of want to ask you but it's like the very ending of Interstellar I remember it being super interesting um, because it it hinted at a, like another story. Like, doesn't he like sneak off? It's like it's like weird. He like wakes up way in the future, right? And then he he sneaks off the ship to go somewhere to say say hi to someone or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So um, when McConaughey is thrown into the black hole and into the tesseract, Anne Hathaway's character ends up going toward that other planet. And so she basically is stuck there herself. And at the very end, we see that it's habitable and she's like starting to build her little colony there. Uh, So back when McConaughey wakes up in the hospital and he's with his daughter and his daughter basically urges him to go find uh, Anne Hathaway to find Brand. And so, yeah, he's sneaking off, I guess, to to go be with her at the end. Uh, And so they do sort of hint at a sequel if they ever wanted to return to it. Uh, Obviously, I'm one of those people who I loved it so much that that scares the crap out of me, the prospect of coming back to it, but... I know, like, so what I like about it, it's, it's sort of like the end of the Matrix. It's like they shouldn't, have, they shouldn't have done a, a sequel, but it's really fun to have an ending that implies like a larger world or a larger story, or we know more stuff's going to happen. It's fun with that at the beginning too. It's like there was stuff before this story, and there's stuff after this story, and we're showing you. You're p- privileged to see this little section that we're going to show you, and that that feels like really epic and cool. You know, I love that Interstellar ending. I think he steals a ship to do it too, so it's a little bit espionagey. You know, <laughs> like. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bit badass. He uh, tars the the machine, helps him. That's kind of a a really fun relationship there, and that strikes me as something that probably they didn't set out to do, but as they were writing it, the interplay between them was just really good, and, and they set that up. Do you find, as a writer, kind of two characters you didn't have any plans for, but something ends up developing between them? Definitely. That can happen. And that's nice when you'll stumble upon moments or like characters. Yeah, they'll get a line and all of a sudden you start to like them more. So you want to give them another line. And often it can be like that, like the assistant dog role, like even like Alfred, you know, it's like that assistant who's always there. They kind of we tend to like like them for some reason, even from as a writer and they, they can get beefed up. I have characters like that in Earthbound. There's a guy who there's a, a kid named Blogart. A lot of it takes place in a school and he's kind of like this nerd playwright, uh, student journalist kind of guy. And he's like connects all the different cliques or whatever. He's, so he's he's in a lot of scenes, but he's not really a main character. And a lot of people tell me he's he's their favorite character, you know, and I didn't really plan it that way. It just ended up that way. Yeah, that's always probably really satisfying because in a way you are trying to well maybe this isn't the case i was going to say you're trying to play to what you think the consumer wants and when a supporting character takes hold like that it would seem to be demonstrable of your talent you're just so good at writing that this thing you didn't intend to be anything uh becomes something but is that actually true or are you kind of just writing for yourself in in general 
Yeah, well, because I wonder, it's like, it could mean I didn't get what I wanted because I probably want them to like the main character the most. Mm-hmm. But what, so what happened with, with Earthbound was, yeah, like, so the main character's name is Wizkid, and he is like a straight man kind of. And so he actually doesn't have as, as much personality as um, the main, it's kind of like Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. There's like three kind of main players in the story. Almost, like, I almost call it like Rock, Paper, Scissors, the comic, you know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, one of them is his, he's called Spaceman. And he's another one. People tend to like him. I tend to like him more, but he's the bad guy. And he's kind of a dick. And for, for some reason, it, he'll make you laugh and you end up liking him. And I'm kind of like, so be it, you know, like if people like him, he, he it's kind of weird because he's not exactly the antagonist he's they're all in competition with each other so you technically could root for whoever you wanted and then a lot of the intrigue is just to kind of see who's going to win because you really do have no idea who's going to win it's interesting this is sort of the age of the anti-hero in a lot of ways Or, or maybe that's what the last decade was because obviously now there is a skepticism and a scrutiny of art in a way that there kind of never has been before. There's a lot of uh, judgments placed on art based on people's personal belief systems. Is that something you worry about at all? The morality of your characters and how people interpret that? Or, uh, Or do you just kind of like to let it play however it does to people? Yeah, I try to not step in with my viewpoints at all. Uh, And some, yeah, I kind of feel that could be a problem like with like Marvel comics. A lot of people critique modern Marvel comics because they do do that. It's kind of propaganda-y, some of it, you know, and the a lot a lot of like my book is it's not really a reaction to that, but it's just kind of exists as this alternative where like, yeah, I kind of like ignore a lot of that stuff. Although, you know, if you're just telling stories, of course, you it is fun to have good guys and bad guys and stuff. And that like, I want to address that. That's like a, it's just scratch in a future story to have a really bad, bad guy and a really good, good guy. Cause that could be interesting, you know, and the, those stories surprisingly are more rare than we might think kind of what you're saying, even though it's like classic, you know, but uh, like have a bad guy that we love to hate, you know, where instead of a bad guy that you kind of like, and he's almost like a good guy, kind of like spaceman's maybe a little bit like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, so there was one more thing that I wanted to touch on with you uh, from the film and as it relates to your own writing. So obviously the thing most people remember about Interstellar is the Tesseract. When he goes into that black hole and ends up in that three-dimensional representation of five dimensions, some people's brains just shut off. They don't really want to deal with it. Some people don't think too much about it and just kind of let the emotion wash over them. They just kind of go with it. And then there's some people that kind of try to unpack it. So as you were watching it, what category did you fall into? Yeah, I was part two. And but I, as I remember it, because it, so it's I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but I remember it looking interesting like it looked like a library or something right that's how i remember it in my head and it's funny because he uses a book like it's the bookshelf that he reaches through but then like the strings hanging like they were kind of like vertical and they looked like books on shelves almost that he was in this giant library of information that's sort of how i how i like justified it in my head maybe okay yeah so you 
we're connecting to the emotional aspect of it and kind of just setting the intellectual aspect aside. Like, yeah, it's suspension of disbelief. The universe is what it is, and you're just rolling with it. Yeah, because I didn't – yeah, maybe after it ended, I would want to think about exactly what happened. I think I watched some YouTube videos trying to explain it. But in that moment, it's definitely – fly by the seat of your pants improv almost kind of, you know, kind of like the end of 2001. It's like, you're not, you're like, Oh, I see what we're doing. We're doing like the trippy sci-fi stuff. All right, let's see where this goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And reading it in the script is kind of would be confounding without the context of the movie. It was really difficult for them to figure out how they were going to visually represent that. And I thought they did a pretty good job. I don't know where the idea came from, in the Nolan Brothers' heads, because I wouldn't have been able to wrap my mind around it if I didn't actually see it. When I hear you describe some of your projects, there's a lot of layers, uh, a lot of the plots are very complex, the world building is very complex, and I actually kind of have to take a moment to try to play back what you just said in my head. Uh how do these ideas come to you, and are you ever worried about uh, being able to put it on paper in a way that people can actually understand? Yeah, so there's some anxiety because, like, so I, I've said this before that, like, for I, I draw every day, and then I usually will write at least one day a week, or if I'm really in involved in a writing project, I'll write every day. And so writing, it's a little, I do less of it and it's more rewarding. A good day of writing feels really good to me. But then I kind of forgot that a a bad day of writing feels really crappy. And that happens too, where where you sit down and and you can kind of like, ah, did I lose it? It's like the rest of my life going to be nothing. My brain doesn't work anymore. I got no connection to the ether of bringing in the good ideas, you know? But then like when I was young, I used to not care if people stole my ideas because I'm like, whatever, I got a billion ideas. You can have them. <laughs> I don't care. And now I'm like, I got I got 10 ideas that I play pretty close to the chest because I'm like, I want to make these graphic novels eventually. And, you know, like long 240 page is each kind of like a essentially a movie script turned into a graphic novel is kind of like the length that I like to work in. And which is a little bit different than traditional comics, you know, because a lot of times they structure specifically for 20 page issues, 24 page issues, and that can change the structure. And I, I really like the drive and the build of a movie script. You know, I like that more than TV. And that's kind of what I'm trained in and what I always gravitate to. But it, it can be hard and, you know, like getting the rising action because you can write an opening and you can think of an ending and then maybe you think of something that happens in the middle and you write it and you're like, I just wrote 40 pages. Like what happened? I did something wrong there. Like, so that never gets easy. Like mapping it all out to have like the long rising action that feels good. And so that's, I guess to answer your question, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, there's like an anxiousness that never seems to go away, but then it feels really good when you get it right. And there's some level of like faith that you just chip away at it. Cause you know, at first and your know, arts like that too. Like when you start a drawing you make your first mark, it can look terrible, but you kind of, I'm so, it's so second nature to me at that point, I just power through and I'm not really looking at it until it's already starting to take form. But if people watch me draw, which I do that sometimes on my YouTube channel. Yeah. It might be like, you might give up if it was you. You do one drawing, you know, one line, you're like, ah, it doesn't look like what I want it to look like. And then you give up. And so for writing, I definitely don't want to do that. I want to power through, get to something that I can work with. Because it is, it's a little bit like sculpture too. Like if you get your first draft, you got something to work with, then you can make it good. So just getting that first draft really helps also. Comics are a fascinating medium because I imagine in some sense it's 
ever evolving throughout the process. I mean, unlike film, kind of, unless you're going to redo the drawing once you've put it to paper, it's sort of locked down. But I would imagine that you probably have a basic outline of a script, but that even when you're drawing it, some things could shift around a little bit based on what you've done on the page. That's true. Yeah. They say with filmmaking, they say like editing is the final draft of the script or whatever. And um, with comics, it's like lettering for one is a final draft. And I do that like with Earthbound, I would change dialogue. It's I have some I call them like deleted scenes, but they're just alternate takes on dialogue. Sometimes it's for like a stand in joke. And I have like three versions of the same joke. And it's it's not even like, like one. I use the one that's the most funniest. I use the one that's the most fresh to me in the moment. And then sure enough, it gets, you know, it gets printed and then that's it forever. But it, it is kind of like this, this situation that happens. And that does happen with with visuals, too. And it happens with once you're in the story, little ideas can come up like so my, my book after Earthbound is called Foreign Agent. And um I put in it, it, it's two soldiers going to a house, a, a kind of like a home invasion type story. But then the, they're not trying to kill the family. They're just trying to kind of like coexist and hide out for a little bit. But they speak different languages. So the there's a young kid in the family who can draw and there's a young soldier in the family who can draw. So they communicate through drawings and it becomes this like meta comic within a comic of them trying to communicate and so that's going to be like a cool book, you know, but right in the middle of that, I had, I had an idea. I was like, I want one of the soldiers to his previous job is he used to be a barber and he's going to cut the woman's hair. <laughs> and so that, that wasn't in the script. I just drew that. I improv it kind of, you know? Yeah, that's cool. Uh, American comics or comics in general, but you know, I only ever read American comics are, are kind of a really wonderful and somewhat lost medium. I read them a lot as I was a kid. The Chris Claremont run of X-Men was really cool. I read a lot of Star Trek comics when I was a kid, and I was out of it for a long time, and I've gotten back into it a little bit the last couple of years. I don't know. Have you read much Sean Gordon Murphy? Uh, yeah, he's one of my favorite artists right now, and I read a little bit. I haven't read I just have a few issues of Batman White Knight that I've read. I haven't read all the trades yet. Yeah, Batman White Knight is fantastic, kind of a, a remarkable achievement. And what struck me is I had never been emotionally moved by a comic book before. And I kind of didn't think it was possible because I always thought of it as like a Rambo movie on the page. And so the idea that I could be emotionally moved by a story involving the Joker, this kind of large, larger than life sociopath was, was incredible to me. Yeah, that's cool. That happened to me with the manga Berserk and then the comic, Why the Last Man. Both those gave me strong emotional responses and they both, for them, I was kind of like, you know what, this is actually better than uh, most novels and better than the most movies, which it's rare, but like comics can, can do that. They can get up there with, with the best of all mediums, you know, for eliciting a response, but it's kind of rare. It's hard to do. And that's kind of, yeah, like something I want to strive for, you know, but yeah. Yeah. It follows the path of video games a little bit. I guess some of it is that the technology has caught up with things, but there's a lot of video games that are actually really emotionally compelling and fulfilling stories. Have you ever heard of a game called The Last of Us? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so that, uh, maybe I just like father-daughter stories. Well, I guess we're both disappointed with each other then. What do you want from me? 
Admit that you wanted to get rid of me the whole time. Tommy knows this area. Oh, fuck than... Well, I'm sorry. I trust him better than I trust myself. Stop with the bullshit. What are you so afraid of? That I'm gonna end up like Sam? I can't get infected. I can take care of myself. How many close calls have we had? Well, we seem to be doing all right so far. And now you'll be doing even better with Tommy. Not her, you know. What? Maria told me about Sarah. Ellie? And... You are treading on some mighty thin ice here. I'm sorry about your daughter, Joel, but I have lost people too. You have no idea what loss is. Everyone I have cared for has either died or left me. Everyone fucking except for you. Don't tell me that I would be safer with someone else because the truth is I would just be more scared. You know, I'm playing that game and I'm really moved by the story. I'm choking guys out and feeling really guilty about it because they're just kind of other survivors trying to, to get through life. And so we're in this really exciting time as much as I'm frustrated by technology and the way I feel it's pulling us apart there's more opportunity for artistic expression in multiple uh, media than ever before. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. The video game wise, like I've been watching let's plays while I draw up and throw it on YouTube, but I've been watching death stranding. Have you heard of that one? The I new have Kojima heard of game? that. Yeah. I don't know what to make of it, but it looks fascinating. Yeah. It's really cool. And it's got some good emotions, good story. And the thing I really kind of like about it too, is it's not about killing, which is kind of rare for video games. And there's more of that these days too, which I like, um, kind of an interesting challenge. Yeah, that's true. I, I think I was even reading like in that game, like the game mechanics, they force you to like balance your weight left and right or something. It's the, the games are, the mechanics are so deep and force you to do so much that these days I would probably rather watch something than play it. Cause I don't know that I would invest enough time to get good at it. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about like, yeah, I'm like, what is, cause I like watching it, but I'm like, what is keeping people playing it? And I think I got a little theory about that. I think it's like, it's like this exponential growth or exponential improvement kind of can be addictive. There's this like paperclip game that I played once and it was funny. You just, you're just clicking buttons and looking at numbers on the screen and like allocating. It's all just like fake number clicking. Like, you know, you're buying gear to make the paperclips, buying stuff and then shipping it out. But all you're doing is clicking buttons. But as you make more money by selling paperclips, you can improve to make more paperclips faster. And it has this feel and it goes faster and faster, faster, faster. And sure enough, it's weird. It's addictive. And I played it for like two hours straight. I was like, what just happened to me? Why did I do that? <laughs> yeah, uh, there's there's like a uh, an entrancing uh, hypnotic aspect of things now. And I guess it's because there's people doing the psychological profiles of consumers and they can actually predict that we're going to react that way. But I don't know. It's a little sad how easily influenced we can be. Yeah, that's true. So Earthbound, obviously a piece of science fiction. You talked a little bit about Foreign Agent. Do you have any more plans for science fiction type pieces or in the vein of interstellar parent-child dynamics in any of your work? Yeah, let me think. I don't have parent-child 
that I wonder if that could be like something that I'd be more interested in when I have a kid, you know, I don't have a kid. So I'm like, but I, I could, I could be interested in writing it also when I don't, it's kind of fun to try and just try and do that. But, um, for sci-fi, yeah, there's like two or three more concepts. That's kind of definitely my, the sandbox I like playing in the most. Um, I was saying too, like with the raid redemption, there's a, that's a great action film and it, and it builds, builds, builds the action builds, builds. And, but the problem is the kind of the badass levels build at the end it wasn't able to build on because the middle was so badass that the end wasn't able to, to top it. And so it, it suffers just a little bit pacing wise for that reason. And um, sci-fi concepts can get over that because, because it wasn't sci-fi, all they got is like martial arts, you know, it was kind of, they had to repeat themselves at the end. And I'm like, Oh, if you had sci-fi, it's like a good, like the matrix is like that. Like I like any sci-fi idea that can allow for martial arts is like a rare, weird idea. So I have one idea like that that I'm like kind of excited about. Yeah. Yeah, sci-fi is an endless canvas of possibilities. So that's actually a really interesting point. Sci-fi is the only genre that lets you exponentially raise the stakes every time without becoming stale. Yeah, you can kind of keep going with it. And I did one YouTube video, too, that is like the idea of exploring, you know, planets. That's one. But then the idea of exploring just planar realities like, you know, the astral plane, the matrix beneath us, the spiritual realm, whatever, all these like various possible planes that kind of interests me a little bit more, too, than exploring planets. And I like I like I want to explore more of that. Like, it's hard to even think of examples. That's a little more rare, those kind of stories. But like Twin Peaks is like that. Um, I'm sure there's a few others. Uh, the matrix is like that, you know, any matrix story inter, uh, inception is kind of like that. So you're talking about, yeah, these different planes here. I, I want to close with you by going back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, the spirituality of love versus the science of love. And I actually want to try to pin you down here a, a little bit. What is love? to narwhal yeah that's a good question so um, my my mom when i was a kid you know i i asked her like any kid might you know i was like mom what is god and she says god is love and i've heard that a lot and i kind of i really like that and relate to that so i can kind of understand so the, the other thing about this is that i'm i'm really into simulation theory so i'm kind of like spiritual mixed with simulation theory and some people say simulation theory is like a gateway to christianity pretty easily and i kind of can feel that you know like i i I feel like the the Holy Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I kind of think, I hope this isn't blasphemous, but I think like God exists outside, you know, what he created, so he can't enter it. So he enters it through an avatar, and Jesus is his avatar. And then the Holy Spirit, to me, is the matrix. It's like the beautiful math that creates our world or whatever. That's some deep shit, Narwhal. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> I don't know. But that's like, that. that's what love is to me, I guess, yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. So it's like uh, love, in a sense, is the tether between the artificial creation and the creator. Yeah, it's 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 almost like the the ether. You could say, you know, it's kind of what connects us. It's kind of like the building blocks that God's working with a little bit. So the lo- so there's like that love, almost a vertical love between us and and the creator. What about the lateral love, the horizontal love between these avatars who are at the same level? What do you think that means? Why does that exist? Yeah, it's it's like important and fun, like human connection is so important. And yeah, like I love that feeling. And well, this is, I don't know, because like the other thing is 
we totally love animals, but yeah, like the super deep human connection with another person with like a wife or something like I have, you know, dated girl, I've had girlfriends in the past that I've been really in love with. And right now I'm, I'm single, but so I like kind of remember it fondly, but I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get back there, you know, like, it's like, that's kind of like some, I just think of it, like, think of it so fondly memories of what love feels like. It's it's interesting because there's different permutations of love too, of course. Like you suggested, the love you could have for a dog, the love you have for a significant other, the love you have for a parent, the love you have for a friend. And in a way, you've used the imagery of scratching an itch several times. It, every type of love seems to scratch a different itch. It fulfills a different need that we have. That's definitely true. And like, I feel like for animals, dogs, for me specifically, it's it's like junk food or like, not that it's bad, but it, it's like easy. It's easy and, yeah. and f- maybe a little more fleeting and, but very good. And then, yeah, like with people, it can get pretty deep. There obviously some things you can kind of take for granted, unfortunately, like I, like I have moments of really appreciating my parents, which is good. Um, and as I get older, as they get older, that happens more and more around. Like I note to self, I really got to take take in with these guys actually i sort of think uh i'm in that like almost like denial phase as my parents get older where i'm like if they just make it to like 20 more years uh science might have advanced so that the average age span goes to 120 and then they'll have 20 more years and then by that time it might go to 140 i'm like so just hang on a little longer mom and dad (laughs) yeah i feel a little bit that way with my mom yeah Need to dust off those Walt Disney uh, cryogenics. Yeah, she's like in her late 60s now. I lost my dad last year. And so then that makes you kind of put even more of a premium uh, on the other uh, parent. So, yeah, if you if you crack uh, that key to life, just let me know. Yeah, I know. It's fun to think about. And thanks for making me think about it a little bit. But yeah. And yeah, going through the death of a parent is so tough. And and some have happened to my some of my close friends. And I just can hardly believe what it would be like. But I, there's like a saying from uh, from Hemingway. He says, no American man, no American boy is a man until his father dies. It's kind of an interesting, weird quote. But I think it's so strenuous and hard that it really changes your brain a little bit or something. Yeah, I think so. And it's interesting. You were when we were talking about uh, you potentially doing a parent-child story. Your first reaction was, "Yeah, I might be a little more into that when I have kids." And it's interesting that you were looking at it from that perspective and not the other side, because I think there actually is a meaningful distinction there. I think it's harder to lose a child than it is to lose a parent, because somehow losing a parent feels more fair and because that parent didn't spend their whole life counting on you. And so that's really different. If you're a parent who loses a child, then that thing that it was your job to protect is gone. So that's a lot harder, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. That didn't even occur to me that I immediately jumped to the idea of me being the parent and then thinking of a kid, kind of that kind of point of view. But that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I want to show uh, Earthbound uh, real quick one more time. It is still up as of this moment on Indiegogo. I think it's the hardcover version of it, which I purchased today uh, is November 23rd. You said it was going to be up for about a month. Yeah, it's it's in demand. They call it Indiegogo. So it's still available to buy. I think uh, 
I'm getting books shipped to me. They should arrive next Wednesday. So fulfillment is about to begin, which is nice because with Indiegogo, sometimes it takes a long time to get to that point. Like you might buy the book, back the book, and then you get the book a year later. And there is like, this was, this campaign was open a year ago. The process of ordering prints took so long. Unfortunately, there was various things that delayed it. I'm going to be able to do it faster next time, but I'm just really glad that it's started and I'm going to ship them out. It's going to be everyone who ordered the book gets the book and we're moving on to the next thing, you know? Absolutely. Super exciting. Go check out Earthbound on Indiegogo. The hardcover version is available. When are you launching your next campaign? I think it'll be February. There's some funny metrics with this. Like you don't really want to launch in December or January, too close to Christmas, kind of. But yeah, February, March is pretty nice, uh, a good opportunity. So that's probably what I'm going to do. Fantastic. Uh, Your YouTube channel is Narwhal Books. You do a lot of videos on kind of the writing process, uh, conspiracy theories, pretty much anything under the sun. Yeah, it's it's I, it's like commentary on storytelling and then heavily mixed with kind of like my personality, like almost like some kind of vlog type stuff, you know? Yeah, a uh, very entertaining channel. Uh, Earthbound looks really cool. I'm really looking forward to getting it. Uh, Narwhal, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me. It was really fun and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for doing this with me. And yeah, this was great. This has exceeded my expectations for it's really fun to do a podcast like this. You're a great conversationalist. Oh, thank you very much, my friend. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in this week. Uh, please stay tuned as the end credit suite from Interstellar plays you out of the broadcast. Take care. Thank you.